Well, this morning we are uh, very blessed as uh, we have with us uh, Pastor Dave Shepherdson. Uh, he is uh, one of Pastor Ted's very good friends. Uh, they actually uh, started Revival together, uh, and so they go back a long way. And uh, you can't tell looking at him, he's like 20 years old. Um, but uh, uh, he's actually also uh, the guy who's teaching our um, marriage class that's coming up on Tuesday night. So after service, you guys are going to run back to the back and sign up and try fight each other for the last few spots. Um, so we're really blessed today. Welcome Pastor Dave with me, please. Thanks, brother. Oh, and ne- next week on, everybody be wearing a band like this. This is like the new hip right here. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Yeah, Cody's right. Uh, Ted and Brenda and their family and our family go way, way back. Uh, Way, way back. Our kids grew up together, which is our greatest treat, and their mirror images are our sets of kids are. And uh, they were together so much that uh, people didn't know whose kids were whose. You know, everybody was always mistaken uh, the kids for uh, each other's families. Uh, I, I suppose we've been uh, in the ministry together for almost 20 years, and we've experienced all those normal things that come from being in the ministry together, like crying and bleeding and uh, being crushed to powder, you know, the standard ministry fare. Uh, we, we've experienced that. God has used uh, the families, each other, you know, he's used each other in, our, in each other's lives to do great things. And so it's a privilege. We're also friends, and we've spent uh, so much time together uh, in the early days that, uh, you know, we just became one big family. So when I say it's a pleasure to be here, I mean it's a serious, huge, huge pleasure. I uh, appreciate the encouragement for the marriage class. Um, if you'll come, I promise you, it'll be different. It's different than, uh, than anything I've seen, and I've, you know, looked around a lot. So uh, it's actually a Bible study, if you can imagine that. If you've been to, to marriage conferences or, uh, or marriage series or watch the DVDs, sometimes you think, hey, you know, my Bible's getting a little cold here. Uh, so it's a real Bible study, real interactive. Uh, don't not come for this reason, but uh, homework's included, so... Uh, it'll really cause you to grow and give you opportunity um, for God to transform your marriage. Okay, enough of that stuff. Title of the message this morning, The Most Important Question. The Most Important Question. If you'll open your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 16, and I hope you have your Bible. I appreciate Cody doing that. And If you don't have a Bible, make a scene and get one, or snuggle up to the person next to you and read theirs. Uh, But make sure you have a Bible that you can follow us through, okay? We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 34 of Acts 16. I now come from a different country. Uh, It's not too far from here. Some of you heard of it. It's called Nuevo. And in the little church that God has allowed us to pour our lives out in Nuevo... In the last two weeks, we've experienced four deaths connected with the church. That's a lot, because when I say it's a small church, I'm not being humble. I'm just stating the fact. It's a small church. Included in those four deaths is one brutal murder, three of the four occurring on Sundays while we were at church or during the early hours of Sunday. Guys, that's a lot of death, man. And when that that amount of death 
hits you, when you're dealing with that amount of death, there's one question that death or the thought of death or imminent death always brings up. That question is, what must I do to be saved? When death is really staring us in the face, we know eternity's coming. God's put the knowledge of eternity into every single person. And so when we're staring death down or when it's so just just blatant in front of us, the question that it causes us to ask is, what must I do to be saved? And guess what? All the people around you, friends and family, people in the world around you, they're asking the same question. So that's the question I want to deal with today in Acts 16, okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, as we approach this most important question, Lord, we pray, God, that Your Word would come alive to us. That by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that Your Word would be all that it is. That it would be living and powerful. That it would be active. That it would be sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. God, that it would pierce us. And we pray, Lord, that You would put us in the place of the jailer in Acts 16. That as we see Him ask the question, and as we see His response, Lord, that we would see a parallel in our lives, God, and if we don't, we pray You convict us. We open You to open ourselves up to that right now, Lord, and pray that You would reveal to us if we've missed the answer to this question, God. We pray, Lord, that You would emblazon both the question and the answer in our minds today. And Lord, that not a soul would leave here unsure of their permanent, guaranteed, eternal home. We pray you do just a magnificent work here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, leading up to Acts 16, to where we're going to jump in anyway, uh, just prior to this, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke had sailed from Troas to a place that you may know as Macedonia. I'm telling you, that's the European continent. So I know it hasn't been that long since Pastor Ted Todd Acts, so you may remember this. It's an incredible moment at the beginning of Acts 16 because as they sail from Troas to Macedonia, what it was called then, they're bringing the gospel to Europe. And guess what? From Europe, the gospel really spread to the ends of the earth, including a little colony of Europe's called the Americas. And so if you want to know, hey, how'd the gospel come to America? It's right here in Acts chapter 16. That's a cool story. So as they land, the first place they end up where they really settle in for ministry is Philippi, uh, where the Philippian church is. And uh, here's something for you ladies. The very first salvation recorded in Europe was that of a businesswoman. Whoop, whoop, for the businesswoman. Okay. Lydia, seller of purple, first recorded salvation. It's very, very cool. And so then Lydia compels the ministry team, Paul and his team, to stay with her at their house. And so they're staying with Lydia. They're really beginning the Philippian church, beginning the roots of the gospel taking off in Europe. And as they're going about their ministry duties, uh, they have a demon-possessed slave girl start literally nipping at their heels. Like one of those dogs... If you have one of these dogs, don't be offended yet. I'll give you more opportunities for that. You know, the little dogs that nip at your heel, nip, nip, nip. Okay, that's what this demon-possessed slave girl was doing. Just nipping at Paul's heels, man. And so finally, Paul turns around 
And he casts the demon out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And it works. And it's great. And, and there's maybe some assumption in between the lines that she joins the church and becomes a believer. And so everything's going great. Right up to the moment when the owners of this demon-possessed slave girl realize that their ability to make money by using her as a so-called fortune teller, soothsayer, their, their ability to earn that money has been eliminated by the demon being cast out of her. So, a little side note here. Uh, note the combination, if you'll read Acts 16, the combination of demon possession and soothsaying or fortune telling, just in case you need that little bit of information. Uh, so, the owners of this demon-possessed slave girl are, are worked up because their income source is gone. So they drag Paul and Silas into the public square in front of the public leaders, the leaders of Philippi there. They trump up a bunch of phony charges and they just rile everybody up into a frenzy. We pick up the story in Acts 16, verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes, meaning... Paul and Silas's clothes, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Guys, this is an ugly, severe beating. Verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer, there's the focus of our message today, so just note that, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison. That's the deep, dark dungeon. If you happen to have been in prison, you know it's called the hole. Anybody want to admit to knowing that? <laughs> I had a guy that had been in prison seven times sitting up front in the church uh, when I taught this. And, um, and so I asked him about it. And his wife for some reason, wasn't that thrilled that I was asking him about prison uh, from the front. So um, if you've been there, you know it's called the hole. It's the deep, dark, musty place. The end of verse 24. It says, He fastened their feet in stocks. Listen, this wasn't required. There, there was no, it's not like they're going to stand up and walk out. They'd just been beaten severely with rods. They were in extreme pain. They were in the deepest, darkest place of the dungeon, the prison. Guys, this was torture. To have your feet put in stock so you can't lay down, you can't move, you can't readjust your body, it was torture. Brutal beating, first stop in taking the gospel to Europe, beaten severely, thrown into the inner dungeon, tortured by having their feet put in stocks. Paul and Silas do exactly what I'm sure you and I would do in the same situation, right? If that were to happen to us, we would start singing and praising God, right? Praying and singing hymns to God. This is a whole study in itself. But our focus is a jailer today, so I can't delve into this, but just look at verse 25 and, and, and try to put yourself here because I believe if the Holy Spirit really puts you in that place where you had to suffer to this extent for the Gospel, that He would give you the grace to sing, to praise God, to pray in the deepest dungeons. When people find themselves in that place, God gives them the grace sufficient for the need. And they're a testimony. Well, Paul and Silas, more at the very least a testimony. Acts 16.25 But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. It's like they're on the front row of, the, of a church service. 
And their feet are in stocks and they're just praising God and they're praying out loud and they're singing hymns. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen. It could happen on this floor, but if there's a big empty space on the front row and somebody comes, you know, like a big, big guy, no big girls, okay, but big guy, big guy comes, sits down, boom. That's kind of what I picture happens next, okay? It's because I believe God wanted to join in. God says, hey, I want to worship with you. I'll come right in there and sit down on the front row of that pew with you. Look in verse 26. It doesn't really happen, but I believe it's God joining in with Paul and Silas. Acts 16, 26, it says, suddenly there was a great earthquake, right? Boom, God's here. I love that about God. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, that's our focus, he's our focus today, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Remember I said, death is in at the door. He's face to face with death. Because if the prisoners did in fact escape, that would be the punishment that he would have uh, received. Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Verse 30. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. That's where we want to focus today. Those verses, verses 30 and 31 of Acts 16. I'm going to read them a lot today so that you'll really, really get them. As I said earlier, this jailer is face to face with death. Just like so many people associated with our church right now have been. Maybe you have been in the light of a tragedy or a funeral or uh, terminal health news. And when the jailer saw the power of God, he asked the most important question any of us could ask. What must I do to be saved? And guys, we as a church, as believers, as followers, as disciples, we must get the answer to this question right. We've got to get this question right. The world is asking us, what must I do to be saved? You have family and friends, people around you that are asking, though you may not know it, they're asking, trust me, what must I do to be saved? And we've got to have the right answer. We've got to know what the Bible says, and we've got to be ready to share what the Bible says. Amen? I found out first service that, um, that you guys aren't really used to like you know, interacting as much as maybe I might ask you to. So, don't feel bad. I don't want to change anything here. But when I say amen, if you feel like shouting, go ahead. Amen? Amen. Thank you very much. All right. So let's, here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about two incorrect answers to that question. The question, what must I do to be saved? I want to talk about the pendulum of incorrect answers. Two extreme, incorrect, or what we like to call wrong answers. And then I want to talk about the biblical answer to that question, what we like to call the right answer. Does it make sense? All right, here's where we go. 
Turn back to Acts 15. Let's start with the extreme of the pendulum. You might call it the extreme right, but you pick a side, doesn't matter. The extreme, the first extreme incorrect answer to this question we find in Acts 15 verse 1. In Acts 15 verse 1 we meet the Judaizers. Say, ooh. The Judaizers are, they cause trouble for the gospel the entire New Testament. All right? They're Christians. They're inside the church. How many of you know that the enemy causes most trouble for the gospel from inside the church? I know you don't really want to shout an amen to that, but yeah, you know, just read it. Uh, it's really true, so uh, be careful. But So the Judaizers are inside the church, but um, here's what they want to do inside the church. They've, they've received Christ. They've put their faith in Christ, but they want to add their rules and regulations to salvation by faith alone. Look how they do it, Acts 15, verse 1. Here's where we introduce them. And, and certain men came down from Judea, uh, actually from you know, Jerusalem up to Antioch, but everything from Jerusalem is down. So men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, you might be thinking that's a physical uh, act. It's not. The circumcision is a sign of a covenant that you make to keep the full law of Moses. So what the Judaizers are actually saying here is we think, we want the new believers to be told that unless you keep the full law of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's problem, guys. That's the first major attack on the gospel. So what happens if this jailer happens to meet a Judaizer when this question's on his mind? What must I do to be saved? What's the Judaizer in Acts 15.1 going to tell him? Well, let me tell you how to do it. See, there's 623 laws of Moses. That's how many recorded laws there are. There Really, only God gave us 10, but we built 613 around those 10 uh, to help us follow those. So first step is, is, is you've got to learn the 623 laws. And, and this guy's certainly a Gentile, so he'd probably have to learn Hebrew too. Uh, but, and after you learn the laws, then you've got to keep them. And so what is the chance that if this guy asked this question to the wrong person, that he would set off on an entire lifetime of trying to follow the rules and the regulations of the person who incorrectly answered that question? Haven't you seen that happen? Haven't you seen that happen where someone says, what must I do to be saved? And then someone else says, I know. Here's our rules and regulations. Here's how our religion says you have to be saved. You know, right in the midst of all of this death and, and thinking about salvation and dealing with, you know, end-of-life issues, my cousin calls me from Phoenix. And my cousin grew up in a very rule-oriented, oriented, rigid, religious uh, group, okay? You say, how rule-oriented were they, Dave? Well, I'll tell you. They told you what kind of underwear you have to wear. I won't say their name, but you might know. Just absolutely a mountain of rules and regulations and implied, if not, if not actually taught, you must follow all of our rules and regulations to be saved. She grew up under this, and there are many people that you know around you who have also grown up under it and also believe it. We have to follow these rules and regulations. 
down to what kind of underwear we wear. Look down at Acts 15, verse 1 again. Acts 15, 1, the Judaizers are saying, unless you follow the laws of Moses, sign is circumcision, unless you follow the laws of Moses, you can't be saved. What are these religious groups doing that have all these rules and regulations that say, if you don't join our church and follow our rules, you can't be saved? Aren't they saying the same thing the Judaizers said in Acts 15, 1? Guys, Acts 15.1 is the beginning of this attack on the gospel, and this attack has not ceased since. And so my cousin was uh, understanding this kind of over the years and and listening to uh, somebody teach the Bible uh, verse by verse, and it started coming across to her. And then um, she went to dinner with a guy. And it's okay because she was single. And so... So she went to dinner with this guy, and this guy happened to be a committed member of a different religion that is also very rule-oriented. The interesting thing is, if you think spiritually, um, both these religions started about the same time in the late 1800s and really took off in the early 1900s. This religion that this guy uh, was a devout member of, they have their own Bible translation. In fact, they say every other Bible translation is wrong and only theirs is right. There's only one funny thing. They won't tell you who wrote theirs. (laughs) Because the guy that wrote it didn't speak any of the original languages. Read, write, speak, none of it. That's why they won't tell you, but that's a story for a different day. So anyway, this guy says, oh, no, no, no. All those rules and regulations you grew up under, they're all wrong. Our rules and regulations are right. And here's the biggest rule that you got to know. In order to get to heaven, here's what you got to do. You got to knock on doors and hand out our printed material. <laughs> You're kidding me, right? <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a pretty logical way to, uh, uh, to propagate a uh, religion? To tell people they can't go to heaven unless they hand out your propaganda? Uh, it seemed funny to me. I don't <laughs> I don't know. How did people get to heaven before you were printing your propaganda? You've only been around for, you know, since the 1900s. Hello. Uh, <laughs> so here's what my cousin found out, all right? She found out that both these groups have very long lists of what's required for you to get into heaven. She found out that both these groups claim that their list of requirements have come directly from God. And their requirements are all dramatically different, drastically different. So as I'm talking to her, I'm starting to think of the people in our church who have come out of these rule-based religions, and I got to four. I'm not going to tell you the names of them. If you notice, I haven't. Uh, I might have given you hints. Um, But some of you students that always had to get an A, you'll probably come up to me after and go, I know the four, I know the four. Um, But I I, I counted four religions that are active in our little microculture here that we live in that require you to, number one, follow their rules, do it their way. Number two, coincidentally, they all say you have to be a member of their religion to get into heaven. And all of their rules and regulations are dramatically different. Hmm. That's incorrect. (laughs) What must I do to be saved? Uh, That's incorrect. If you find someone that says it's our rules and regulations that have to be followed, uh, as soon as you start saying, hey, you know, um, I don't really see that in the Bible. Uh, They have an answer for you, but it's not biblical. 
Every one of those rule-based religions is in the family tree of the Judaizers. Just ask them, man, have you ever studied the Judaizers? They're the guys that said, yeah, you can receive Christ, but you've got to take all our rules with them. And by the way, you know, there's always an issue. They never fully believe in the deity of Christ. Moving on. Do you have the first answer? you have it clear in your mind, the first incorrect answer? You ready to move to the second one? We have to, or we'll run out of time. Here we go. Uh, Back to Acts 16, verse 30. I'm going to keep reading Acts 16, 30 and 31. Why? Because repetition is the mother of learning. Because repetition is the mother of learning. Because... See how fast you learn? That's why we memorize the Bible. It's because repetition causes it to be to just get planted in your heart. So that's why I'm going to keep reading it today. Acts 16, verse 30. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Guys, that is a wonderful and absolutely true statement. However, Before we dig into how wonderfully true and accurate that statement is, we have to deal with our second incorrect answer, right? Question is, what must I do to be saved? We've done one of these pendulum swings. Well, guess what? The pendulum swings all the way back the other way to what we might call the antithesis, if we know what that word means, uh, at the extreme other side of the pendulum. Here it is. The other incorrect answer is the casual acknowledgement of a belief in Jesus Christ. The casual acknowledgement of believing who Jesus Christ is. It's the other extreme. It sounds like this. Yeah, sure, I believe in Jesus, but don't get all Jesus freaky on me. I, I'm not, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not like going to change my life or anything. You know? I believe in Jesus because... I want to get in when I show up at the pearly gates, but hey, I'm still in charge, okay? I'm not, you know, I'm not letting anyone else call the shots. I make my own decisions. I do what I want. But sure, I believe that Jesus is out there, you know. I believe. I slipped up a finger once when everyone's eyes were closed. That's called dramatic pause when you just let the room sit like that. The other extreme to religious rules is casual acknowledgement of a belief in Jesus. To think, yeah, I believe. I'm good to go. I got my ticket punched. I'm sure I'll get in. I might just barely squeak in, but I'll get in. But I'm not going to let it affect my life. Let's talk about that person. Let's talk about the risks that that person might face. Can you turn back to Matthew chapter 8? It's not too far. Matthew chapter 8, right after the 400 years of silence. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is... (laughs) Everyone's like, where is that? Sorry. Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee, just calmed a storm in Matthew chapter 8. We'll pick up the text in verse 28 of Matthew 8. It says, When he he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, 
There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have you to do? What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God, or O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Look, question, look closely at verse 29. Let me ask you two questions. Number one, does it look like the, the demons believe in who Jesus Christ is? Look. They call Him the Son of God. They acknowledge the fact that He is going to judge them at some point and challenge Him on His timing. Do the demons know who Jesus is? Say yes. Is it going to get him anything with God? Stay in Matthew because I want to read you one other verse there. Let me just put up on the screen James 2, verse 19 in my second favorite uh, Bible translation, the NLT, the dynamic thought-for-thought translation. James 2, 19. uh, That was like a little promo, wasn't it? I should get something from them for that. James 2.19 in the NLT. Read with like contempt, okay? You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Oh, James. You say you believe that there's one God? Big deal. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Whoa. See, our culture has been, um, you know, maybe lured, I'm not sure, I don't want to get into all that, into we just want a casual acknowledgement of belief. We just want to count fingers or something. I don't know. We just, you know, uh, we just want people to believe. And so guess what? Everybody believes. All the demons believe. Man. All right, turn back one chapter in Matthew. Let me show you the worst of the worst of the risk for this person. This person says, yeah, but I go to church. I'm a member. (laughs) I went through the membership classes, and I do good. You know, I do a lot of good. I do a lot of good. You know, I try to follow that sermon on the whatever and, and all that stuff. Matthew 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Guys, that's a pretty serious risk, isn't it? For the person who uh, tries to hang their eternity on a casual acknowledgement of believing who Jesus is? These are very serious Scriptures meant for a very serious thing, your eternity. So if you ask me, what must I do to be saved? I would give you two knots. First, it's not following the rules and regulations of man. Don't get caught up in that, which we love to get caught up in that. Why? Because we love to earn our salvation. That's why all those religions exist, and it's why they're the biggest in the world. Because people like to feel like they've earned their spot with God. Forget about it. 
Forget about it. Number two, you also, it is also not by just some casual acknowledgement of a belief. That's the other side of the pendulum. I wasn't just dancing. Uh, it's, not, it's also not just the casual acknowledgement of a belief in Jesus. So what is it? It is exactly what the Bible says it is. It is exactly what the Bible says it is. You ready to go back to Acts 16? One more time, but I, I don't think it's the last time. Acts 16, verse 30. Repetition is the mother of learning. Acts 16, verse 30. You back there? And the jailer said, paraphrase, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Guys, there is no truer statement in all the Bible. There is no truer statement in all the Bible. So let's test it. Let's do what, what I call a shotgun or a machine gun cross-reference test, okay? We're going to take a section of the Bible and we're just going to put up on the screen all the references that support this statement. That if you want to be saved, it comes from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because I want to let you out of here before dinner, uh, we're going to use just one book, the book of John. I wouldn't suggest turning because I'm going to move pretty fast, but what I would suggest is that you write all these verses down. If you've got a big margin in Acts 16, it's a great place to write it. If not, write it on the back of the hand of the person next to you, especially if they're nodding off. Just write right there on their hand. You ready? Here we go. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. John 3, verse 15. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. We're just getting started. John 5, verse 24. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. John 6, verse 40. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. John six forty seven. Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in Me has everlasting life. Am I getting the point across? John 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, He who believes in Me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in Me shall never die. And John chapter 20, verse 31, the purpose of the writing of the Gospel of John, John says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Amen. Thank you very much. Amen. Uh, did I miss any? Anybody, anybody say I missed any? If I missed one, holler it out. John 3.16, the most 
famous verse in all the Bible. John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, it means each, every, any, or all, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe what I put on the screen? Say yes. This is absolute truth. It's absolute truth. It's not opinion. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you had a week, I'd take you through the other 65 books of the Bible and I'd show you the same truth in every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Salvation is by faith alone. The Reformers said, sola fide, by faith alone. Oh, that's good. However, that's the polite way of saying but. However, all of those verses and our verses in Acts 16 are not implying a casual acknowledgement of a belief in who Jesus is. They absolutely are not. They're talking about a level of belief that brings true salvation. And we'll see that if we'll just go back to Acts 16. In fact, I think you're still there. If we'll just continue reading in Acts 16, we'll see the answer. Listen, let me just share with you one of the, you know, what, what they, whoever they are, what they call Davisms. I have these things that I say all the time. One of them is, the answer is always in the next verse. Can you say that with me? Say it with me. The answer is always in the next verse. Guys, the answer is always in the next verse. It is always in the next verse, man. Keep reading. The answer is always in the next verse. Let's put that to the test. Acts 16, verse 30, as if we hadn't read it enough yet. Acts 16.30 says, And he, the jailer, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Let's deal with that little tag after the comma there in verse 31. You and your household. It means that your household can be saved the same way you are. You can be saved by believing in Jesus Christ and your household can be saved the same way. That's all it means. Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So you see immediately in verse 32 that Paul and Silas did not leave this jailer with a casual acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Do you believe? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, our work's done here. No, our work's not done. Man, we got to tell you about Jesus. We got to give you the word. We got to give you the full gospel. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They would have told him about Jesus. They would have told him who Jesus is. They would have told him what Jesus had done. They would have told him how the whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus and laid the tracks for him. They would have gone over all that they know about God. And then. They would have given the jailer and his family a chance to respond. I know they did because that's what we're going to see next. So they would have told them all about Jesus, all about the promises of God, all about the Old Testament truths, and then they would have given them, the jailer and his family, a chance to respond. And that's exactly what we see in the next two verses. In the next two verses, remember, the answer is always in the next verse. In the next two verses, we see four responses. I'll help you count them. 
Four responses of the faith that this jailer put in Jesus Christ. And it's by those responses that we understand the depth of what, it's, what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Here's another truth. True inward belief brings true outward response. Listen carefully. True inward belief brings true outward response. Here's how we see it. Verse 33, Acts 16, 33a. And He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes or their wounds. Guys, this is repentance. Repentance means to turn around, to turn away, to go the other direction. And in this jailer, instead of inflicting wounds, he's now what? He's now healing wounds. In fact, those upon whom he's inflicted wounds, he's now healing their wounds. That's what we call repentance. He's going a different direction. His faith has caused a change in the direction of his life. Do you see it? That's the first response. Is he's repented from the wounds that he helped cause on Paul and Silas. That's a huge deal. Continuing his response from his belief in Jesus. The second half of verse 33 says, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Second response. We call it public identification. And so the jailer, not only has he repented of his lifestyle or his actions, but he is also wanting to be publicly identified with Jesus Christ. Now guys, that was the number one way to be identified with Christ in the first century. It's still the number one way. But back in the first century, it generally brought persecution, especially during uh, these decades of Roman rule. And so this jailer said, I want to be identified with Jesus. Why? Because Paul and Silas had taught him and his family about baptism. Baptism means that you are joined together with Christ, that you are permanently identified with Christ. Romans 6 says that we are buried with Him by baptism into death, and we are raised with Him to walk in the newness of life. Greek word from the back row? Baptizo. That's my daughter. Uh, half, half of our six kids are all back there. It's baptizo in the Greek in Romans chapter 6. It's not just being dunked under the water, man. It's a symbol for being permanently identified with Jesus Christ to the extent that a permanent change takes place. The picture, I can't get into it. The picture is of a pickle. You take a cucumber and you baptizo it into vinegar. You immerse it into vinegar. And if you leave it there long enough, the cucumber so identifies with the vinegar that the nature of the cucumber is changed into a pickle. And once you pull it back out, it's a pickle. Guess what? It can't go back to being a cucumber. It's been permanently changed because it's been immersed in something. That's baptism. Okay. I didn't have time for that. But that's, that's just a great understanding. That's Romans chapter 6, okay? Don't forget that word, baptizo. The point is, is that the jailer not only wanted to repent of his sins, he wanted to be publicly identified with Jesus Christ. That's his first two responses. And if we keep reading, we'll see two more. Verse 34, it says, Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. So he brings his previous prisoners, whom he was torturing, into his home, and he sets food before them. And he rejoiced, the end of verse 34, he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. Guys, this man's life was transformed. 
The men that he had just previously been torturing, he now brings into his home and he sets food before them. We call this, not potluck, we call it koinonia. We call it fellowship. It's fellowship with the believers. He is bringing the believers into his house and he's communing with them. He's sharing food with them. They very likely, some scholars say, shared in the Lord's Supper. Because Paul and Silas would have taught the Lord's Supper and what was called the love feast. And so this food and this communion was probably included what we call today communion. But the real change in the jailer's heart is koinonia, fellowship with the believers. Fellowship with the believers. That's a big deal. Fourth, at the end of verse 34, it says, He rejoiced having believed in God. He knew that He knew. His salvation was assured. He was confident that Jesus Christ had changed His life. And immediately, the outward responses came from the inward belief. Immediately. Here they are, four of them. Number one, He repented. The first half of verse 33, repentance. The second half, He was publicly identified with Jesus Christ. First half of 34, He had koinonia, communion, fellowship with the believers. And the last half of 34, he had the assurance and the rejoicing that his life had been transformed. You see it? Oh, that's good, man. How do I know if I believe? You got me all kind of wiggy with the whole demon thing. How do I know if I believe at this level? That? See any of it? Well... I'm trying. All right. It's all right. Jesus is graceful. But this you don't earn. You fall in love with Jesus, and this comes from the inside. It just issues out of you because of your love relationship with Jesus. Ginosko. These are all my favorite words. Ginosko means an ever-increasing intimate relationship that I may know Him. And through that intimate relationship, all these things issue forth. And then you go, I am saved. I'm a different person, man. I've been transformed. Yeehaw! (laughs) That's good. All right, let's wrap it up. Let me just summarize. Believing means this. Putting your full trust and your full faith in Jesus Christ as both your Savior and your Lord. Those titles are key. Your full faith, your full trust in Jesus Christ as both your Savior and your Lord. The only picture I can give you, the best one I can give you, is that little two or three-year-old jumping off the edge of the pool into daddy's arms. Or maybe, if you're lucky into grandpa's arms. (laughs) If you're a grandpa, I got three grandkids. Uh, And so daddy first, okay? Daddy's got to earn that trust. But you know, you've seen it, right? That little two or three-year-old just jumps with abandon off the edge of that pool with no fear. Why? Because they know the character of their daddy. And they know their daddy's going to catch them. So don't you ever miss them. Dads. (laughs) Okay, that messes up the whole analogy. You catch them because they expect you to catch them because they trust you. They have faith in you. Believing in Jesus Christ means, number one, putting your full faith and trust in Him as Savior. 
as your Savior, your only Savior. It's believing that He did take your sins upon Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in Him. you got to believe that wholly and completely. There is no good deeds. you got none. Okay? Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> All of sin, there is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 says, not one of us. It is only by Him taking our sins upon Himself and paying the full penalty on the cross. That's our only way to be saved. It's our only hope. And you have to believe that with nothing added. Faith alone, nothing added. Number two, believing in Jesus Christ means that you believe that He is your Lord. Which means you follow Him. It means you follow Him. It means you trust Him. You trust His direction. You look to Him for direction. You remind yourself daily, Lord, servant, master, say the word, slave, doulos, slave by choice. Your master, I'm slave. Your Lord, I'm not. You're in charge, Jesus. And I love it that you are. And I'm surrendering to my life. I don't even live any longer. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. It's not even my life anymore. That's more than casual acknowledgement. It's full surrender to a Savior and a Lord. His name is Jesus. And when we put our full faith and our full trust in Him as our only Savior and as our absolute Lord, the moment we do that, God's Word assures us we are saved. We are saved. We are saved, saved, saved. Someone say amen. We're saved the moment we put our full trust and faith. The moment we jump off the edge. The no, no, we leave the shore. We're all in for Jesus. That moment we are saved. And the Lord comes in and fills our life and transforms us. And then it shows. And then it shows. And then it shows. Not by becoming rule followers, but also not by mere casual acknowledgement of who He is, but by truly believing to the point that it shows that our lives are transformed. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you done that? Are you all in? Have you left the shore? Have you thrown yourself completely on Him? Do you trust Him as your only Savior, as your only Lord? not holding anything back. If you haven't, I want to give you a chance to right now. The most important question you will ever ask or that will ever be asked of you is what must I do to be saved? The answer is believe. Truly, wholeheartedly, completely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.